There we are. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, I am Father Andrew. You don't always see me here because I'm usually uh, over with our students, our 6th through 12th graders, but you often see me in different attire. Um, this morning we're talking about Simon of Cyrene, um, and you'll notice that he's not on our usual litany that we use. Um, <laughs> we had this paradigm that we're all going to do stuff from the litany, and I immediately said, I'm going to pick someone who's not on the litany, but I think, I think we'll be okay. Because of that, we don't actually have a prayer as part of the litany to open us, but what I am going to use to sort of start us out is the um, part of the litany of the Stations of the Cross that Simon of Cyrene is part of. It's the fifth station here. So I'll say the first part, we'll say the, the Jesus prayer together, and then we'll jump in. Jesus, you accepted the help of a stranger in bearing your cross. May I be ready to accept the help others willingly offer me. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. So Simon of Cyrene is a, an interesting character in scripture. Um, if you were to assume that Mark was the first gospel, uh, the gospel writers write increasingly less about him with every gospel, with Luke not saying anything and John being silent as well. Um, so Mark has the most about him, and the entirety of what we know from Scripture about Simon of Cyrene is this. Mark 15, 21 says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. That is it. But he gets his own station in our Stations of the Cross. So just to unpack the little bit that we have in that one verse, um, Cyrene is an area in what is now eastern Libya. Um, so he was almost certainly not white, despite all of our Renaissance paintings of him. Um, he was probably potentially Jewish. There were Jewish communities throughout Africa. And so coming from out of town, perhaps he's visiting for the Passover. That would make sense. Um, Mark tells us he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. And we assume that Mark is name dropping not to just sort of give Simon's lineage just to say, hey, he had some kids. It's likely then that Alexander and Rufus are people known to the early Christian community. There's a Rufus mentioned in Romans 16. So this character, Simon of Cyrene, and his children are somehow probably known to the early church. Maybe they're leaders of a church. Maybe, you know, Simon's a relatively popular name, and so it pops up other places. So is he that Simon? It's sort of unclear. Um, and it says that he was compelled but tradition pretty early on kind of jumps on that idea of him being forced to carry Jesus' cross into he was sort of forced and then instantly like his will turned and he wanted to do it. So it's like, you have to do it. He's like, okay, I'll do it. Yes, I really want to do it. And it changed really quickly sort of to turn him into this figure that matters. Um, the prayer we started with um, had this idea of Jesus willingly accepting help from someone else. And as we go through the stations, we sort of pray that we might as Jesus does, sort of receive help from others. Now, again, not only have I abandoned the, the litany, but I'm going to kind of put a spin on even the Stations of the Cross litany in that I want to think less about Jesus' role in that. Like we do in the Stations of the Cross, we're walking with Jesus. We're going to think a little bit about Simon's role, what his actions look like, um, and sort of step into that. As tradition is wont to do, there's sort of been artists and poets and people kind of reflecting on what it means to be Simeon, what was going, or sorry, Simon, what was going on in his mind, what he was thinking about. Um, 
And because of that, he can become this figure that many of us can associate ourselves with. Um, I decided, I tried to be provocative real early on by using Greg Schreck's um, Stations of the Cross by having a woman be Simon of Cyrene. Obviously, Simon was not a woman, but the idea is, and uh, if you visit, this is on the fifth floor of the Billy Graham Center, um, these um, portrait stations that Greg Schreck did, they're fantastic. And if you go through in his explanation, he did a sort of second series, he did an update of them, and part of it was he realized that a lot of his photos were male, and in walking the Stations of the Cross, he wanted to add a little bit of diversity. The point being stepping into this life, stepping into this person's shoes, um, and so forth. So that's, that's Simon of Cyrene. Those are all the things we know about him. We know nothing more, and from here on, we're just kind of jumping off and doing some speculation. But I want to explain before we speculate more about Simon and think about his work in bearing Jesus' cross, um, a little bit of autobiography, a little bit of explaining why I jumped on Simon so quickly. So this is Simon of Cyrene. This is Simon of Winfield. Um, <laughs> this is my son bearing his cross. Um, so Simon of Winfield was born in June of 2015. Um, before then, the sort of months leading up to it, um, we sort of had the name Simon in mind already. Um, if you ever talk to my wife about naming, she, she cares deeply about naming. We prayed a lot about naming ahead of time. Um, we were wrestling with two names, Simon and Patrick, and potentially different orders. Um, and apparently, I had forgotten this detail, but uh, Joy reminded me last night. I had sort of leaned into this place of Patrick Simon. I sort of liked the first name Patrick. Um, we liked it before my first son was born, but it was close enough to the death of a close friend that I didn't, who was named Patrick that I sort of couldn't come to do that in 2011, but in 2015, felt like the right time. But then, um, Joy was leaning towards Simon as a first name, and I was walking through the Stations of the Cross that Holy Week, um, and it's on that Good Friday at the noon service that we came to the fifth, fifth station, which is, um, looks like that, and it's, I mean, right there. I mean, it's up here for those of you who can't see it easily, but um, I approached the fifth station, and sort of spending that time in silence reflecting on um, this work of bearing Jesus's cross, of taking on someone else's burden, of stepping into someone else's suffering, um, that felt very powerful to me. And suddenly in that moment, sort of, I came to terms with what my wife knew all along, um, which was Simon was a good first name and I wanted to step into that. Um, the name Patrick also is not unrelated in how it, how it functions. Patrick um, of Ireland, we know mostly for Green Rivers, but of course, his story is having been taken as a slave and been a child slave among the Irish people, getting his freedom and then returning to them out of an obligation to preach the gospel to them. So there's this sense that, that Patrick is also burdened with someone else's problem of, outside of his volition, and he chooses to act in it anyways. And so I've been reflecting on this figure, Simon of Cyrene, for a number of years. I've sort of been fascinated by him. Um, and this idea of suffering alongside people. Again, that's uh, Joel, um, Joel Sheasley who did these stations. Um, and then the, the difference I want to think about is how we step alongside people um, in terms of fixing versus co-suffering. I don't think co-suffering is a term that actually exists, but I'm using it this morning. Um, Simon has this interesting calling. He steps in, he's compelled to carry Jesus' cross, the early church latched onto that enough because it mattered enough to make it one of the stations. And yet, his help for Jesus, 
is to get to Golgotha. He helps Jesus die in a different place. I mean, he, he steps in and helps Jesus not to, not to help him not die. It's to help him not die in the middle of the street. His helping does no long-term good. His suffering alongside Jesus simply is a very temporary balm for Jesus' suffering. And yet, that's a thing that, that gets mentioned in Scripture, and it's a thing that Christians have reflected on for a while. So this idea of, of helping other people, people being in some sort of agony, existential danger, anguish, um, we can look at their problems and want to fix them, but I, I think there is this biblical model that is important that we have to maybe meditate on a little bit about co-suffering. Now, this is kind of a difficult thing for most of us, um, but it, let me explain why it's difficult for me. Um, my brain is a happy place. Uh, for those of you who have spent some time with me, um, I have a certain emotional equi equilibrium that sort of everything's kind of good and decent, everything's going to be okay, something bad happens, and you go, yeah, that's fine. We're going to roll with that. I sort of have this pleasantness about it. Um, there's, there's a video that Joy and I once saw, and we found that it was so accurate in describing the inside of my head, I wanted to show it to you this morning. So this is like a live look at the inside of my head. It looks something like this. This is what it is. If you were to look inside my head, you said, yeah, yeah, that's the inside of Andrew's head. This is what it looks like. Um, so when I come alongside people who are suffering, deep down, what I want to do is have them stop suffering. But it's not necessarily because I love them, because I care for them. It's because that golden retriever needs to have his pleasantness at all costs. And so everything I want to do, if you are hurting, I'm near you, and basically what I want to do is restore equilibrium. And I want everything to be pleasant and decent again. And so whatever it takes to get you to stop suffering, I will do that because your suffering is, making, is, is bumming me out. You're harshing my groove, and I don't want to be there. Um, and so there's no entering into suffering, at least not at my default, not at my worst. Um, I, I don't want to bear someone's cross. I would be compelled to do it, um, but I wouldn't ever, my will would never turn into suffering alongside someone. It would never be to take that suffering and allow it to come into myself. There is sort of a hazmat suit. Um, I, I'm in a quarantine ward. Everybody else in the world is sick, and I have this pleasant golden retriever that I have to protect. And so I will, I will go in and try and administer cures, but I have no desire to enter into it. Again, at least at my worst. Um, reflecting on Simon of Cyrene has helped me with that. Because that's not love, that's not compassion. That is just sort of selfishness. It's a selfishness that says we're in a relationship and I like the relationship that I have with you. I like being friends with people. But I really don't want to actually enter into any of it. I don't want to take it on myself. And so a lot of people um, throughout Christian tradition have... Um, reflected a bit on Simon's life and looked at this turn of his will, at this move from, I was forced to do this, but now I don't have to, but, but now I want to. And so um, there was a, a Polish, a 19th century Polish mystic um, named Wanda Malczewska um, who wrote this. She had this vision of, of Simon and Jesus 
and their encounter. And she wrote this, Christ looked upon him and Simon understood that gaze. He immediately understood the mystery of the cross and fell in love with the Lord Jesus. I heard him tell the Lord Jesus, forgive me, Lord, for not having rushed at the first demand of the Jews, for I did not know you, but seeing you suffer, I have come to the conviction that you are God hidden in human flesh. Your gaze confirmed my convictions, penetrating me to the depths of my being. It seemed to me that I could not carry your cross, which they put upon me, but I'm now carrying it easily because you, Lord, accompany me. Don't leave me. Now, there's a unique devotional aspect to that between Simon and Jesus, but there is this sense in which at first he does not know Jesus, but then seeing his eyes, meeting his gaze, he decides, no, I, I love this person, and so I'm no longer carrying your cross because I have to. I'm doing this because I want to, because I want to suffer alongside with you. Um, there's, I, I'm sure the, the more we dig down and find people who wrote about it, there's, I'm sure people have spent a lot of time reflecting on what Simon's life is immediately after Good Friday, right? Like he carries the cross, and then what is it like for him in that moment to, to get to Golgotha and set the cross up? And did, did, does he stay there? Does he not? We don't have answers for that, of course. We have one verse about this man. But I think reflecting on it, stepping into Simon's shoes, doing our own sort of way of sorrows by the spectators, by the bystanders around Jesus, maybe helps us step in and understand how they suffered alongside him and how we might follow their examples. There's another poet um, named County Cullen. He was one of the, the poets of the early 20th century, um, part of the Harlem Renaissance. And he wrote this poem called Simon the Cyrenian Speaks. He never spoke a word to me, and yet he called my name. He never gave a sign to me, and yet I knew and came. At first, I said, I will not bear his cross upon my back. He only seeks to place it there because my skin is black. But he was dying for a dream, and he was very meek. And in his eyes there shone a gleam men journey far to seek. It was himself my pity bought. I did for Christ alone what all of Rome could not have wrought with bruise of lash or stone. So these with others give us this picture of, of Simon having empathy. I mean, this is a very sort of basic emotion lesson. But the idea is, is that Simon is coming in. He's nearby. They compel him to carry the cross. But in that moment, he sees Jesus, recognizes the agony, and says, I'm not going to keep this at arm's length. I'm willing to step into this. He was probably compelled to carry the cross either way, but his volitional choice to enter into the pain because of his love for Jesus. And I think that that's part of what we learn from, from Simon as we sort of do this sanctified imagination work here, is that we want to step into pain with other people, that we want to suffer alongside. We want to co-suffer, not to fix someone at arm's length, but, but to be there. And I think we have other biblical examples beyond Simon of this kind of a suffering. So I think first about um, Job's friends in Job 2. Um, Job's friends hear that he is, he is unwell. And they come upon him um, to show sympathy and comfort. Uh, and the text says, when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. We'll get a little bit more to what Job's friends say later, but think about this picture that this is painting for us, of friends who see suffering and enter in 
and show up and simply recognize the agony and say, I'll be here as well. I'll step into that. I will sit with you. I will mourn with you. I will, I will put dust on my head. I hardly even recognize you, the agon agony you're in. And imagine what it's like to see that. And if we're honest, many of us have the first instinct not of let me come in and be with you and more of, oh, buddy, that seems really rough. I will pray for you, brother, and I will go my own way because seven days of agony seems pretty terrible for a thing that didn't even happen to me. And I think in an, in an atomized culture, in an individualized culture, where we think about ourselves as, as isolated units that have their complete autonomy against everyone else, or maybe our vision gets big enough to our own nuclear family, but at the end of the day, when we think about suffering, we think, me, and I'll sort of reach out, and I'll, I'll, I'll help other people from afar. But for now, it's me, and i got to protect me. Um, this is a very different picture of it. So we also see um, Jesus at Lazarus' death. Um, John eleven thirty five. 35. Anybody have that memorized? <laughs> Jesus wept. Easiest verse to memorize. But here is Jesus. He delayed on purpose, right? He's supposed to go to Bethany. They're like, your friend is dying. He's like, let's just wait a couple of days. And he waits a couple of days, and he shows up, and they're like, he's already dead. And Jesus says, and, and Martha yells at him, right? So first she comes up and doesn't say, like, this is so sad. She accosts him, and he weeps. We know what happens next, but in that moment, Jesus, who seems to have orchestrated this whole thing, weeps. He, he, he suffers in that moment because his friends are suffering. He has a plan you know, we can have different conversations about what Jesus' perfect knowledge looks like as a human, but in some sense, he knows what he's planning on doing, and he chooses to suffer anyways. I think about Jesus' instructions in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn, happy are those who mourn. And I don't, I don't know, that's sort of interesting, is that just about people who are themselves feeling suffering? But the Bible has these very weird things about suffering and mourning, about sadness and the power it does in our lives. And so co-suffering then is entering to someone else and maybe, maybe being there with them, but maybe also allowing that to do work in our hearts, to do work in ourselves, to refuse to think about pain and say, I just have to avoid as much of it as possible and say, there is this pain in the world and why should I not be part of it? And of course, the, the, the biggest example of that is the incarnation itself. You know, Philippians, when Paul writes about Jesus' um, they call it the kenosis passage, his emptying of himself, taking on the form of a, a human servant. God didn't have to do this. I mean, I know medieval theologians worked out why this is exactly what the plan was forever. But he, he's God. I mean, he's infinite. He can do whatever he wants. He can heal the human condition in any way that he chooses. And this is the way God chooses to suffer. This, these stations of the cross are the way that God chooses to heal mankind. And I think that's relatively significant. Um, now, of course, the incarnation heals us as well, right? I mean, the process of the incarnation does do some restoration. And I don't want to hold fixing and co-suffering so much at odds that we say, there's this thing where we don't help anyone at all and we're just going to suffer with them and helping people is bad. I mean, God's the God of restoration, of, of new creation. 
These things are at the heart of what God wants to do. But sometimes the process is less direct and less manipulable, manipulatable, manipulatable than we'd like it to be. We'd like to think we're obvious agents of change, but sometimes the things we're called to do are less about how do you fix this problem and more of who are you with and who are you going to suffer alongside. Um, I'd say that co-suffering is at the heart of Christian compassion, that whatever we do to care for other people is co-suffering, is being present and allowing the suffering of the world to affect us as well. Um, there, there's an article I read in preparation for this on uh, the website Mockingbird, where a priest named Kenneth Tanner was talking about suffering alongside his aging dad. Um, he had kept his dying mother at arm's length because of her addictions, because of her problems, because of the reasons that you know, he didn't want to get involved in her life. Um, but he wrote this. When two years later my dad came to live near us, broken in all the same ways by life and by the church and by his own choices, a good bit of external pressure came at me to make sure he saw all the right professionals and that he ate well and that he was active. And I tried all of that and finally said to hell with it. It was not my job to fix my dad. It was my vocation to love him as a son and as a priest and as a human. I realized that the best thing I could do was to draw near to his actual situation and just be with him right where he was, no expectations, no demands. We had a wonderful two years and he experienced a lot of healing. The decision to get close to his pain and suffering and grief and his frustration with the failure of his ministry was such an important one for him and for me. We were always simpatico in life and thought, constantly changing, never satisfied with the status quo in the world or the church. We accomplished a lot together and touched a lot of lives. At his best self, I think he would have evolved considerably over the past decade, but his body and mind were worn out. My choice to be with him was a choice to, in a sense, die with him, and a part of me did die in that process in his death. I am grateful for that learning and so sorry for my failure with my mother, but what I am realizing right now with my homebound flock is that the decision I made with my dad is not automatic for life. It is difficult to draw near to suffering and alienation and death and to die with those who are dying. Life has a cross in it, and there's no way to be a priest or pastor or a Christian that does not involve being immersed in the same trial of dying that those you care for, even those around you, are enduring. So here he is. He throws in the caveat, right? Like, there was some healing. Um, but I think our intentions of why we do things matter. I think doing a sort of listening posture because being a non-anxious presence will in the long game heal people is still trying to manipulate the process. It's still trying to do the math of it and say, I know if I input this type of help, I will ultimately fix the problem. And in some ways, co-suffering can still maintain our little hazmat suits and our golden retrievers playing that bass drum. It's that, okay, I'm going to sit alongside you and I'm just going to like grin and bear being empathetic for a moment because I know that in the end, that's probably the best way to fix you and get out of this mess of your pain and my desire not to be anywhere near it. So I'll just like grit my teeth a little bit longer. But that's, again, that's not... Christian compassion. That's not love for another person. That is simply finding a different end route. It's saying there's a more circuitous route to control this situation, but I still want to have control. Um, before I go on, does anybody have any questions? Do they have anything, comments, things that are popping in their minds?
experiences. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I would love any sort of like guidance or counseling. Yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Alicia, is your hand up? Yeah, no, I think that there is this line, and as, again, as the golden retriever, my proclivity is rarely to go too much into suffering, to take on too much problems. But there is a sense in which, um, I mean, the, the phrase self-care is pretty popular nowadays, and that's, that's an important part of it, because at some point, um, your connection has to, you have to be able to be a non-anxious helping presence. I mean, the friends who, we're going to get to it a little bit later, but I mean, Job's friends sit with him for seven days, and then they just roast him in like poetic, like they roast him with poems about his own immorality. So maybe they spent seven days writing poems about how bad he was. But there, and, and even Jesus weeping, again, he knows what's going to happen. His weeping is not a loss of his control. Um, he is still the safe person to weep with. Um, but he's, he's refusing to allow to be untouched. So maybe co-suffering isn't the best term to try and illustrate it, but I, I think... Alicia, you're totally right. There's a sense in which when, when someone is suffering and you, and you fully take on their suffering, it might do, it might do damage um, to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. I can't even, like, like I'm hearing what you're saying, and I do think 
Yeah. Like, what would it look like to actually, like, co-suffer with everybody all the time? Yeah. I, I'm not sure I have practical outlets to this. Let me be clear. Um, this isn't quite a sermon. I sort of like sermons because I get to, like, throw out the harshest side to one thing, and then you guys can give me pushback, like, later. Um, but the, the sermon's job isn't to present all sides. This is a little bit closer to maybe presenting more sides. But, yeah, I think some of the pushback that, that we're hearing right now is valid and important. Um, but I do think that at the heart of Christian compassion, and in some ways the, the preacher in me wants to say, yeah, the way of the cross is folly. Like dying to self is, is nonsense. It is nonsense to say the only way to live is to completely give up everything. Um, now, we, we always end up doing a little bit of pulling back, and maybe that's what we're supposed to do. Um, I'm always in awe of Christians and saints throughout the years who have taken some of Jesus' words literally. And they sell all, like Francis sells everything and, and, and refuses to, to take goods, right? Like, I'm in awe of that, and I basically always want that person chirping in my ear. Like, but hey, maybe you could give away more things. Maybe you could suffer more. Maybe you could enter in a little bit more. Maybe not to the point where, where vulnerable people no longer have someone coming alongside them, but sort of have gained another sufferer, and now you need a third person to come in. Um, Although my Bible school wants to say maybe that third person is Jesus. Anyways, uh, your head was up. Hand was up. Yeah, so, I mean, one, one way to think of this is, like, you're, the way you're presenting it is, is like, this is hard for you. Mm-hmm. Your nature is not to, to co-suffer. So one way to think about this is to, yeah. is to say our job is not to always co-suffer, but to be willing to co-suffer yeah. if you are so led by the Spirit yeah. in a situation, right? To not close that off and no. be just a fixer, yeah. right? And then there are lots of times when we probably won't be called to co-suffer. Yeah. We're called to fix or be stable or to take action. Sure. You know, or to be Christ's hand. Yeah. But then there, we know sometimes it's like that's not feeling right. Yeah. And you have to open yourself to maybe this time. Yeah. I just spend the seven days with my father. Yeah. And, and I do think some of the times, and then I, I have a couple more things I need to say here. Um, I, I do need, to, I do have more to say. Um, I do think sometimes we live in a society that's so opposed to the idea of, of empathy, of proper empathy, um, that in order to know when it's right, when it feels wrong, when the fixing feels wrong, we've got to start developing those rule of life things where we're willing to enter into suffering, where we don't look away, um, where, we don't, you know, where we don't move on, where we say, no, I have the time now. Um, it's, it's hard to tune your conscience to sort of be in a place where you recognize suffering when you need to and fixing, right? Like that's, that, that's the, the difficulty of discernment. I'll have more questions in a second. I do want to cover a few more things um, before we, we move on. Um, to return, for, for me, the, the primary example, and again, to keep things autobiographical, because I do want to talk about me as much as possible. Um, <laughs> so I, I return to, to Simon of Winfield. Um, and we're going to mix some metaphors here. Um, but aside from this cross, which he did choose, um, he has his own cross that was laid on him that he didn't choose. Um, when he was two, we recognize a speech delay, and after a year of speech and developmental and um, occupational therapy, he has what is called an educational diagnosis for autism. Educational diagnosis means the school looked at him and assessed him and said, 
we're not doctors, but he presents like someone who has autism, so we're gonna teach him like someone who has autism, and that's his educational plan. Eventually, um, what are called medical diagnoses come four or five, come a little bit later. Um, and there's some things that I've learned in the process over the last year about what autism is. Um, it's not a fixable thing. It's not a, it's not a chronic illness that needs to be cured. Autism is just, Simon's brain is wired differently. Um, the, the terminology that's often used is neurologically typical and neurologically atypical. So Simon is neurologically atypical. His brain just functions differently. They can't, they can't test his blood and say, oh, he's got autism. They can't, they, they can't do an obvious, I don't think they can even do like a brain scan and say, see, there's, there's the autism right there, right? Like it's just an observable set of patterns. Um, sometimes people talk about autism as a spectrum. Um, I've heard people say a more apt metaphor is a Sunday bar that that people present different things. So you may know someone with autism who um, sort of has tics or, or does motor regulation things or gets fixated on things. And these are all sort of different parts of what it might mean to be autistic. And so we talk about high and low functioning, but those are relative terms. All of this is a sense in which Simon will grow up and be very different from the society that he grows up in. And so, and there's nothing you can do about that. We have a society built on on the mean, on what neurologically typical is, if you can call any of us typical. There, there's a sort of mass of people and they say, this is how we've built society. And Simon just isn't in that mainstream. And so he'll continue to have new and different ways that he doesn't interact the same way. Um, because of the language delay, it's hard to explain that to him. He, it seems like his receptive language is really good, but his expressive language or his ability to say, this is what happened to me, is, is much lower. So we're, we work through that. Um, and as his dad, thinking about what it means to be his dad, thinking about what it means to co-suffer for Simon, means there's lots of things that I won't be able to fix. There are problems in his life that I will simply have to say, yes, that is really hard. I am sorry, that is really hard. So when he's getting a haircut and he is just flipping out because it's unfamiliar and people are touching his hair and he is just like wrenching and he's looking at me in the eyes and saying, all done, all done, all done, all done, which is exactly the thing we tell him to say when he wants to leave a table. I, I have to just be there with him and say, yeah, I, I know. And, and he doesn't understand that he's got a shaggy little head and his hair is kind of looking like a little mullet over the back of his glasses. So he just, he just needs a haircut. And so we have to step in and we have to do that. Um, and he's three, so we're going to learn new ways that that happens. But I actually think there's a way in which um, that's the way it is for every parent, right? Like I'm not, we're not special in that our child will require some co-suffering because all parenting requires some degree of, yes, that problem is terrible, and, and yeah, that's how it is. That is middle school and high school, right? They are middle schoolers and high schoolers. It is terrible, and we all know it, and I'm sorry. <laughs> I am sorry that middle school is terrible, and there's nothing we can do to change that that part of your life is full of misery, and it's full of joy and all kinds of great things. That sounds really scary. It, it gets better. There are wonderful memories. But the, the point is, I think co-suffering can't be about comparisons or evaluation. We tend to do this thing. We either make a sort of like trickle-down empathy thing where like because someone else's three-year-old is, is neurotypical, um, they should have the co-suffering with me because I have a atypical child. And so th that's how it works, right? They look at me. I don't look at them, right? Or you start to do the evaluation. You see two families. The Unger's kid is melting down and someone else's kid is melting down. And you say, well, this one has autism. 
this one doesn't have it that bad. Your kid's neurotypical. Why, why should I have a pity on you? There is someone who has it worse. And we do this evaluation game where we say, your suffering doesn't matter enough. But of course, in every single biblical example, the suffering could have been judged, right? So Job's friends are about to roast him. They don't believe that he's innocent. They don't believe that he's fine. If, if Job is a like, perfect one-for-one one history lesson, um, if it's historical in the sense that his friends really said those things as they were, they all wrote elaborate poems about his immorality. But they spent seven days with him anyways. I don't think they showed up and in seven days came to the conclusion that Job had sinned. They went in and said, this guy is suffering. I hardly even recognize him. I will be there. Even though I think he's in the wrong, I will be there anyways. Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And I don't know if you remember, the prayer before Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead is one of those like preachy prayers where he like, he prays and says like, God, you already know this, but I'm saying this for the people around me. It's the kind of thing that like annoys us, but we're not allowed to be annoyed at Jesus. And so we leave it be. But like he has that kind of an attitude about the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And yet he weeps with Mary and Martha. Um, the incarnation is a product of our humanity's refusal to turn back to God, just repeated over and over again. And so God doesn't have to suffer with us. We didn't merit any of his suffering. We're in the mess we made for ourselves. But God says, I'm going to enter into that anyways. And so I think that's what I want to impress upon us is that um, this co-suffering, and, and we're already starting a discussion, um, and we'll return to it in a second, that I think is really valuable to figure out what it looks like, how to do it in a healthy way, how to do it in a way that, that isn't like multiplying suffering rather than sort of being a balm. I've got five minutes here. Um, but we have to choose to enter it. We have to make the decision to say, I'm, I'm not going to spend some time looking at your existential pain and say, I'm sorry, you made your bed, now lie in it. There, there's just not a, much of a biblical precedent for you made your bed, now lie in it. Um, and actually, the, so the title of my talk was um, Simon of Cyrene, patron saint of bystanders. So one writer contrasted Simon of Cyrene with Simon Peter on that same weekend, right? Um, and there's a, a, another Polish poet. Apparently, the Polish people love Simon of Cyrene. Um, <laughs> there we go. Roman Branstetter had this, this poem called In the High Priest's Courtyard. And at the end there, the devils are praying a pseudo-litany to Peter. This is what they say. Peter, patron of those who flee, patron of those who hide, patron of those feigning indifference, patron of those who close their eyes, patron of those who move away from the fire, pray for our cowardice. I mean, that, that'll roast you right there. <laughs> but that's, that's the thing, right? That's the difference between Simon Peter and Simon of Cyrene, is that one says, I'm compelled to do this, and, I, and in this situation, I'll choose to enter in. And one says, I have the option to keep this at arm's length. And even though I feel compelled by the Spirit to enter into this, even though I was one of Jesus' disciples, and I promise never to leave his side, I just need to keep this at arm's length. And that's the difference that I think makes the difference in the end. I think that's what this co-suffering thing that I've been reflecting on with Simon of Cyrene is about. Um, again, I'm going to read a quote from uh, Father Tanner, the guy who spent some time with his, his aging father, and then we'll have a few minutes for questions before I close. Um, he talked about working in a congregation full of aging and infirm people, and he wrote this, They are dying, and I have a choice. I can visit them while maintaining professional or vocational distance, or I can draw close to their actual experience. 
and in a way unique to Christ followers, in a very real sense, to die with them. I've been their pastor for 13 years, but I don't really know how to do life with anyone at a quote-unquote professional distance, because I do not see Christ's manner of life among the suffering and oppressed and diseased and dying as happening at an arm's length. No part of the effectiveness of Jesus is the way he draws near to those whom that culture condemned as cursed or forgotten by God because of their poverty or disease or sin or misfortunes. Jesus got so close to people that he was before the cross already bearing with them their shame and alienation and pain. And so this is the, is the, the voice that calls out to me. And I think there are, there are reasons to say, slow down, Andrew, don't go and, and just mourn all day. Uh, and maybe those voices are right, but maybe those voices are wrong. Um, and I think Christian community helps you discern that, right? You don't just like be a lone wolf and say, like, I'm doing it, and just forget everybody else's wisdom around you. That's why you have a, a fantastic church community full of people who can pray with you. Um, but maybe a lot of us, myself especially, need to spend a little bit more time saying, perhaps I should stop. Perhaps, perhaps I need to enter into this. Perhaps I don't jump to the fix right away. Perhaps I just listen. Perhaps I be a, a, what they call in MDiv programs, a non-anxious presence here. Um, maybe, maybe a few extra steps in that direction do a lot of good for us. Um, anybody have any closing comments? I just wanted to talk a lot, so yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we can suffer with uh, victims of uh, gang violence. We can suffer with victims of abuse. We can suffer with the unborn. Where, where, where do we begin? Where do we end? Yeah. And one thing that strikes me about Simon of Cyrene is that his action is specific. He yeah. could have reached out to Mary. He could have reached out to the women of Jerusalem. He could have reached out to all sorts of people. But he reached out to Jesus hmm. and did that thing. Yeah. Yeah, in an internet era, we can see more suffering than we have the capacity to, to suffer alongside. And so I think a radical push towards local issues, um, to be mindful of the fact that we can get information from across the world. But there's something special and unique about saying, what is in my actual neighborhood? Like, let me, heaven forbid, walk around my neighborhood and get to know the people who live around me. Let me see the, the community organizations that exist in my neighborhood. And what can I do right there? And, and let me find some suffering that is specific and targeted rather than wanting to be the sufferer of everybody, right? Like there's a, there's a sense where we want to be the person who does the suffering alongside people. But co-suffering is probably often unnoticed and unremarkable, um, like much of Christian virtues are. Um, yeah, Jennifer, and then I have to ask, I have to let my wife talk. No. Uh, so, to, 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 to,
that's, that's the bystander question, is what are the things you actually pass that we're not opening our eyes to? Is that five more minutes or is that stop? <laughs> oh, I, I said I, I would have Joy speak and then I have a closing prayer here. Well, I, I actually hope that you guys continue to talk about this because there's all kinds of facets that have been brought up that we haven't been able to focus on. Um, but I want to just say this closing prayer. It is from America Magazine, which is a Catholic publication. And so if you'll briefly allow me to invoke the prayers of other saints. Um, you all know I'm not that Anglo-Catholic, but this is beautiful. And so we're going to close with this prayer. Um, Simon of Cyrene, you took it upon yourself to help a suffering Jesus. You didn't have to, but you did. You are the model that the world needs today. In carrying the cross with Jesus, you became like him. Help us to become like you so we can become like him whom you helped that day. And that in so doing, we can be the servants he wanted us to be and show the world yet again that there is another way. Amen. Thanks, you guys.